Rethinking Heroes, Life After the Military. I've spent a decade taking a bite out of conspiracy theories, unraveling urban legends, and grappling with worldwide top secret issues. I've even racked up some of their awards. Wow, I mean, first of all, what a question. Journalism is about telling the truth, all while ferreting out the bottom line. I'm a Harrison Hellraiser. Uh-oh, with me, Carrie Harrison, as your guide. Rethinking Heroes, Life After the Military, with Carrie Harrison. Carrie Harrison with you, and this is Rethinking Heroes. We're going to talk a little bit about the movie Oppenheimer, but not about the movie, about some of the backstory that you may not know about. We're all familiar with the bombing of Japan. This, of course, is around the anniversary time of that. And there is a hidden story, some mystery history that you don't know about. We're going to be talking in just a moment to Thomas Reifer. He is a professor of sociology at the University of San Diego and an associate fellow at the Transnational Institute. And he worked closely with Daniel Ellsberg, a frequent guest here, as you know. And Ellsberg's latest book, last book, was The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner. And he had plenty of insight into that because that's exactly what he was doing. Uh, Professor Reifer has pointed out that the film Oppenheimer raises so many important issues, none more urgent than the vast increase in destructive power that came with the making of atomic and then thermonuclear weapons. The later hydrogen bombs, which we're all familiar with today, were 1000 times more powerful than those dropped largely on civilians at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yet. Even earlier, the powers that be went ahead with the bomb project, despite concerns, this is important, that it might ignite the atmosphere and destroy the world. Some have tried to discount this risk in reviews of the film, which many of you have now seen. Yet, as Daniel Ellsberg back in 2018 showed in The Doomsday Machine, his book, the uncertainties at the time were quite real because, frankly, None of this had ever been invented before. Heavy water experiments were new. All of it was new. And the dropping of it and what would happen was new. Let me introduce Professor Thomas Reifer. I want to welcome you to Rethinking Heroes. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. And you're one of our heroes because it takes a lot of brave people to show us the parts of history that are conspicuously missing from school. Like, I wasn't taught this. Why? Because, well, it's going to kind of ruin it, isn't it? And this is why you're here as a brave person to help us understand the fuller picture. Let's talk a little bit about these atomic weapons and the secret that I mentioned earlier. Uh, what was that for people? There was real concern about atmospheric ignition. And recently the media has tried to discount it and say, oh, you know, there was no real chance of it. But the fact is, is that uh, Enrico Fermi, who was a physicist, the leading experimental physicist, Thought, the, thought it was quite real. Hans Bethe was more skeptical about it. But in the film, it shows that um, this idea that it was it was zero, they hadn't thought it was zero. They said it was close to zero. But when you're talking about something like destroying the world, as Leslie Groves uh, said in the film, it would nice it would be nice for it to be zero. So the fact is, is that this was a real concern. And the scientists going ahead with it was a kind of certain testing of humanity which um, helped inaugurate the nuclear age and then the thermonuclear age, as you mentioned. Uh, but specifically, this is left out of the film. The Bravo test on March 1, 1954, about a month and a half before the hearings, was 15 megatons. That was approximately 1,000 times larger than the 15 kiloton bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima. 
And we're looking at something that had never been done before. We had dropped all sorts of bombs all over Germany, all over Japan at the time. Uh, we later in Dresden dropped uh, what uh, were then called petroleum jelly, later known as napalm in Vietnam. A lot of the, these were in effect, medical experiments. I say that having visited Nagasaki and noticing that the perimeter around Nagasaki before dropping the atomic bombs, uh, they actually made a margin, much as you would in a lab with a Petri dish. So there's a margin of bombing around it. So that the spot you actually bomb is completely intact and not molested by previous bombings, which means you can measure the impact. Now, a lot of us would hate to think that that's the case, but we're learning more over time thanks to people like you. Yes, in fact, sadly, it was the case. And one of the limitations of the Oppenheimer film, and I'm not a, I'm not a filmmaker and I'm a big Christopher Nolan fan, is that it shows no um, none of the people at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It really doesn't. That's something that you have to conjure and hopefully it will be a basis for studying it because the thermonuclear age gets us to an age in which the bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki are the trigger for thermonuclear bombs. Um, and that's an indication of just how much more powerful the uh, thermonuclear bombs are, which are expressed not in kilotons, thousands of tons of TNT, but millions of tons of TNT, which poses a threat to human civilization that is as great as that of catastrophic climate change. We're talking right now to Professor Thomas Reifer. He is a professor of sociology at the University of San Diego and an associate uh, at professor at the Transnational Institute. He worked closely with Daniel Ellsberg, whose book, The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner, laid out so much of this stuff. Carrie Harrison with you. This is Rethinking Heroes, RethinkingHeroes.com. Don't forget, you can get our free newsletter simply by going to RethinkingHeroes.com. And we'll include a transcript of this conversation, plus some of the behind the scenes stuff. Now, Professor, uh, I remember having read Gore Vidal voluminously uh, as a kid, my particular perversion other than watching C-SPAN. And in that, he talked about how the Japanese were actually mid-surrender by the time we had dropped these two bombs. bombs. Not, of course, no, the Oppenheimer again. again. Uh, but that sort of tells the story of what might have been going on. It was his, uh, he postulated, Gore Vidal did, that we had spent so much money creating the Manhattan Project, Fat Man and Little Boy, billions at the time, that you can't just spend all that money and then not do anything with it. Even though a lot of these scientists were warning this, we, we really can't go through with this. We have a sense of how horrific this will be. But you spend a lot of money, you got a machine going, you got to deliver. Well, I think there's a few things. One, a distinction needs to be made between Japan being essentially defeated and it's being willing to surrender. They were essentially defeated. Their willingness to surrender was very conditional on their desire to keep the emperor. But one of the things that the film leaves out and is left out in most histories is that the Soviet Union invaded Japanese-occupied Manchuria on the night of August 8th and the morning of August 9th. And that was as important, in fact, arguably greater of greater importance in leading the Japanese to surrender uh, than the atomic bombings. Uh, this has been extensively discussed in probably the best book on the subject by Chiyoshi Hasegawa called Racing the Enemy, Stalin, Truman, and the Surrender of Japan. And it is true, and it is the case, that the dropping of the atomic bombs 
wasn't uh, simply as it was portrayed, the ending of World War II, it was the first shot in the Cold War against the Soviet Union. A key aspect of the bomb was to indicate to the Soviet Union that the United States had a new ace in the hole. And this was thought of as the winning weapon and its use was contemplated extensively in the Cold War, including in the very month that Oppenheimer had his security hearing in the context of the French defeat, uh, impending defeat at Dien Bien Phu in 1954. Yes, it's interesting how uh, we had various generals famously uh, talking about now we really have to go after the Russians, even though World War II isn't quite concluded. But knowing that the uh, Soviet Union at the time and knowing that we were dealing with Stalin, uh, that a message had to be sent because they were clearly going to be the next one that we had to deal with. And what is more mafia-like than to explode something that no humans have ever seen before with such chaotic, destructive power that it boggles the imagination? That's going to tell your potential enemy, stand down. But it didn't, did it? That potential enemy said, oh, yeah, watch this. Just as predicted. One of the things that the film doesn't go into but is important for viewers to know is that the Bravo test in March 1, 1954, uh, spread uh, radioactive poison over a large swath of the Earth, including the famous Lucky Dragon fishing boat. And when the fishermen came back uh, to Japan in the middle of March, they were soon after diagnosed with radioactive poisoning. One of them died in September, and this helped to inaugurate a global anti-nuclear movement and a real discussion about the bomb. So even though the film ends on a very pessimistic note, it's important to remember that we've had these waves of anti-nuclear movements. Recently, there hasn't been much of one, but we can hope that with the appearance of the film, a revived one will be in the in um, development. We're talking right now to Professor Thomas Reifer. He's a professor of sociology at the University of San Diego and an associate fellow at the Transnational Institute. We're looking at how the movie Oppenheimer omits information about the H-bomb testing just before a scientist's career was destroyed. And let's talk a little bit about why would you destroy a scientist's career? Isn't he there to make this happen for you? Well, um, Oppenheimer had the temerity to, as part of the as chair of the General Advisory Committee, to be against a crash program to build the super, Teller's desired weapon, on both technical and moral grounds. And given his vulnerabilities and the, the enmities that he engendered, especially with Admiral Strauss, who was head of the Atomic Energy Commission and an advisor to Eisenhower on nuclear matters, He needed to be destroyed to get him out of the way, out of the way of the Air Force, which was wedded to the idea of thermonuclear weapons, so that he could never consult with government again, and his views wouldn't be taken seriously on the arms race and the danger of thermonuclear weapons. So if you're planning a, oh, just say several decades long, uh, very expensive military uh, competition, You really don't want somebody ruining that for you, even if they brought you the goods so that you could have this competition forever and ever. Yes. And given that Oppenheimer was vulnerable, an example could be made of him. Um, And also aspersions could be cast 
Well, if you're against a crass program for thermonuclear weapons, maybe you're a communist, maybe you're a foreign agent. Well, James Conant, the president of Harvard, who's co-director of the Manhattan Project, was also against the super program. So was Vannevar Bush. Uh, but Oppenheimer was vulnerable. So an example could be made out of him and a message sent to the other scientists to not speak too loudly against the arms race. Professor Thomas Reifer, I used to live in Chicago. I did for a while anyway, uh, working for uh, the CBS station up there, news station. And I did a story. I did a bunch of different stories on things that they simply weren't covering. They were very good at covering um, panda births at the Brookfield Zoo, um, traffic on the ones. I got in trouble with Bill Clinton for that. Another story at another time. But I did a story on the drinking water out of Lake Michigan. It turns out that Chicago had the most amount of goiters in the nation per capita, per capita, uh, these you know, thyroid problems where your neck swells up and disproportionately so. Like why? The water intake valves, the drinking water is are 200 yards off the end of Navy Pier, which during World War II, they were dumping, you know, plutonium and whatever, all this kind of rot while working on the Manhattan Project. Meanwhile, Mildred and Timmy and Jennifer are guzzling this water for decades Needless to say, uh, much like you're pointing out here that happened to Oppenheimer, Mayor Daly, that's how he talks, you know, called up the general manager of the radio station. You said, you tell this guy no more nature stories. <laughs> and it, for me, it was no more nature stories. So you are 100 percent right. When you get these powerful people over you and they can wipe you out in two and a half seconds, they do. So they want me to do Hollywood news from Chicago, which is uh a little stale and kind of not very good, but that's what they do. So here we are today in a place where there's even less openness. I think uh, everything is classified. Everything is top secret. Uh, you also talked about the lucky dragon incident. We forget, or maybe we don't even know that on the atolls and out near New Zealand and Australia, we were exploding giant, uh, H-bombs and the rest of it. And then all that fallout that we know about, and, and we're not talking Las Vegas in the 60s where you would run a hotel room with, you know, holding four martinis with Dean Martin in the background watching a nuke, and then it just blows in your face. This is like the fishermen there didn't really know what was going on. Can you talk a little bit about that incident? Yes. So the thing is, is that um, the fishermen in 1954 they thought it was a bomb, but they weren't sure. And they were afraid they would get in trouble if they, they thought it was, you know, a secret weapon. They were afraid they would get in trouble. So there was a lot of attempts to hush it up. Uh, Admiral Strauss himself said that the Lucky Dragon wasn't really a fishing boat. It was a red spy ship, which was crazy. And he continually lobbied the CIA to look into it and find out. In fact, when people started protesting nuclear testing, uh, many of their uh, letters were referred to the FBI to find out if they had communist affiliations. So there had been a long period of testing in 46 Operation Crossroads in the Bikini Atoll. Uh, huge numbers of people were poisoned with radioactivity, displaced. And this continued, of course, into the 1950s um, with a thermonuclear test. But it also helped to generate a movement which eventually led to the partial test ban under President Kennedy. And here we are today with, well, I, I don't know what the exact number is, but we're at least 6,000 plus uh, nuclear warheads that can wipe out the planet. Who knows how many dozens of times? And we're at the 
doomsday clock, if anyone knows what that is. That is. I mean, is it like one second now? It's it's some crazy number. And yeah, all of this so painful. Yeah, it, it's just really kind of terrifying. Many of us don't think about it. We certainly don't see anything about it on CNN or any of our domestic news. So we're really not aware of it and we're not mindful of it. But I think what you've done in your research, uh, Professor Thomas Reifer, with the uh, professor of sociology at the University of San Diego, is you're helping us learn about the history that, as I said, is conspicuously missing. We're not taught this stuff because it's inconvenient, makes us ask questions, and it makes us wonder if all the decisions made on our behalf are in the best interest of us and all the other live upright mammals. So I appreciate your research and your uh, your bravery because not all heroes wear capes. Some of them wear, you know, a uh, a mortar on their head like the good old days and a monocle or some pansnay. Uh, how does this work in San Diego? I'm just going to ask you as a sociologist, is everyone rallying behind and going, this is great. This is like so cool. Or <clears throat> uh, we'll let you continue to do this course, but we just want you to sort of manage it. Well, I have a, um, I have a lot of military people in my classroom and they're all very uh, sympathetic to it. But of course, um, it's it's hard because many universities are very closely tied in with the military industrial complex, the CIA, the Pentagon, all these institutions. And there's a reticence to really look at them and explore them, even though Eisenhower himself said that in the long run, it's the people who are going to make peace and they're going to demand the governments get out of the way and let them have it. So there's a long tradition that we can take up from people who served in the military who think that when we go to war, we should do so only when we're attacked and when it's absolutely necessary. So there's a long just war tradition, and there's a long tradition of concern about humanity. And I think at a time of rising xenophobia, some of the people in the military have understand that the most. They're going to be the ones who are going to be fighting in a war. Like, for example, in discussions, people are having a war with China, which seems crazy to me. So... Um, so the fact is, is that you find surprising allies, and that's one of the hopes. What a great way to end. Uh, and I hadn't considered that, but it makes so much sense. At the end of the day, who's actually going out on the field to deal with this? Not me. You know, I can vote yes on TV. I can run around. I can eat my ice cream and vote for horrible people and figure that it's just handled. But at the end of the day, I, I do have friends. Um, I spend a lot of time in Tampa Bay where McDill Air Force Base is. I have Marine friends. I have Air Force friends. These guys have PTSD. They've come back seeing horrible, unmentionable things. Do they want to go back? No because they've seen what it really looks like. And so I think uh, your work in educating us and bringing into light that which has been sitting in the shadows for so long, uh, this is a true act of bravery. And I very much appreciate your having joined us today, Professor Thomas Reifer. Thank you so much. Big fan of your work. Thank you so much. We've been speaking to Professor Thomas Reifer, Professor of Sociology, Try saying that 10 times quickly. Sociology at the University of San Diego and an associate fellow at the Transnational Institute. He happened to work closely with Daniel Ellsberg, somebody whom we featured many times on the show, going back to the Air America days, even back to Sirius XM when I really stirred it up back then uh, without any FCC or censorship. It was good, clean fun. It even got him to laugh a lot. It was kind of an awesome moment. Um, 
Ellsberg's latest book was the Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner. And Professor Reifer has been bringing forth some of the realities that you don't see in Hollywood movies, though they do bring forth the sort of overarching theme. But he's brought into focus all those things that are kind of missing, that are kind of important. And I hope you'll take that and remember that. Carrie Harrison with you. This is Rethinking Heroes. You can get our free newsletter. It's an opt-in newsletter simply by going to RethinkingHeroes.com. And we'll make sure you get a transcript of this entire interview. Thanks again. We'll see you in just a sec. Do you own an annuity, either fixed rate, indexed, or variable? Are you paying high fees and getting low returns? If so, Annuity General would like you to have this free book to learn the pitfalls and mistakes of buying an annuity. The Annuity Do's and Don'ts for Baby Boomers contains the little-known truths about annuities, like how to help reduce your fees and increase retirement income. And it's free. That's right, free. As a bonus, we'll also throw in a free annuity rate report just for calling. We researched over 1,000 annuities and summarized rates and benefits from financially strong insurers. You get annuity do's and don'ts for baby boomers and the annuity rate report, both absolutely free for calling Annuity General today. Hurry, supplies are limited. Call now. 800-726-2194. That's 800-726-2194. Life can be full of risks. One thing you shouldn't take a risk with ever is your family's health insurance. If you're self-employed or you now need affordable health insurance, you need to make this free call right now and see how the health insurance helpline can help you get it. We specialize in helping the self-employed and people just like you that need affordable health insurance to get it. We have short and long-term health insurance plans and some even cover dental, vision, and prescription drugs. Don't take a risk with your family's health insurance. It's not worth it. If you're self-employed or now need affordable health insurance, call right now and learn for free how to get it. Listen, affordable health insurance plans for everyone just like you are a free phone call away. So give us a shout right now. 800-478-4170. That's 800-478-4170. Hi, this is Noam Chomsky, listening to Harrison. Both science and industry work together under the direction of the United States Army, which achieved a unique success in an amazingly short time. What has been done is the greatest achievement of organized science in history. The voice of President Harry S. Truman in 1945, after dropping two nuclear bombs on Japan. On this anniversary of the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, we might do well to remember technology that could destroy countries and civilization and foreclose our human future. The two atomic bombs that were dropped on Japan were secretly developed by the United States with assistance from Great Britain and Canada under the codename Manhattan Project. The decision to drop the bombs was made by President Harry S. Truman. Truman's officially stated intention in ordering the bombings was to bring about a quick resolution of the war by inflicting destruction and instilling fear and further destruction that was sufficient to cause Japan to surrender. After the Hiroshima atomic attack and before Nagasaki, President Truman issued the following statement. The world will note that the first atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima. We shall continue to use it until we completely destroy Japan. 
Doctor Strange Love Report. Hiroshima was chosen as a target because it had not suffered damage from previous bombing raids, allowing an ideal environment to measure the damage caused by the atomic bomb. The population of Hiroshima was approximately 255,000. At 8.15 a.m., the nuclear bomb called Little Boy was dropped over the central part of the city. killing an estimated 80,000 civilians in a flash. In the next six months, it is estimated that 60,000 more people died due to radiation poisoning, bringing the total killed in Hiroshima in 1945 to 140,000. Since then, thousands more people have died of radiation-related causes. In fact, according to the city of Hiroshima, as of August 6th of last year, the cumulative death toll of atomic bombing victims is 237,062. Three days later, Nagasaki, one of the largest seaports in southern Japan, was hit. The nuclear weapon, known as Fat Man, contained a core of 16 pounds of plutonium-239, throwing a nuclear umbrella over Nagasaki's population, which dropped in one split second from 240,000 people to 165,000. This was followed by the death of at least as many from resulting radiation sickness, cancers, and injuries. Robert Lewis was the pilot of the bomber Enola Gay, which dropped the bomb on Hiroshima. In this rare recording, we hear his reflections, in which even the pilots didn't know they were dropping nuclear weapons. Well, at the instant of detonation, we were trying our best to get away from the effects of the bomb, and we were to wait for a length of time until the effects reached us, and uh, as far as I was concerned, uh, I could... Uh, taste this ozone, this electrical discharge in the air. This went right through me and I tasted this very clearly. But uh, this was from the explosion itself. This was from the explosion. This taste that I, uh, that I speak of was uh, instantaneous, at least it seems so. And uh, can you describe what you saw of the explosion over Hiroshima? We waited a minute or two started to turn back towards the target to see what took place. And there was this most awesome sight, and that was the, the city that had been in front of us with its tributaries and bridges and trolleys all outlined clearly in front of us. It was no longer visible. Another crew member, Abe Spitzer, the radio operator on the same mission. It's a sight that you never forget because it was so unbelievable to see, to my perspective, it looked like I was looking down at the sun as this red ball of fire was climbing up into the sky. It's just, it was something that you had to see to actually believe. It's almost indescribable. Listening to Harrison on the Edge. The scope and extent of the devastation testify more eloquently than anything else to the enormous destructive power of the new bomb. 
90% of the 75,000 buildings and dwellings in the city were completely destroyed by blast and fire. In the exclusive Sundance documentary, Original Child Bomb, voices of several atomic bomb survivors are heard. He called for me three times, but I couldn't free myself from the rubble. I said to him, Mommy is coming, so hang on. But I didn't hear his voice again. People were fleeing the burning city. They threw themselves into the river. As they drank the dirty water, they drowned head first. I saw so many corpses drifting in the water. Countless bodies came floating. I couldn't bear to look. People without heads, people without arms, people with their guts hanging out, without eyes. Their skin was peeled off, hanging from their fingertips. In 1962, Nobel laureate and British philosopher Lord Bertrand Russell spoke of the bomb and of what atomic bomb creator Albert Einstein had revealed to him, as can be heard here in this rare Pacifica archive. Why did President Truman drop the bomb anyway? Freedom of Information Act searches have revealed new documents from the Joint Chiefs of Staff which debunk Cold War myths that the dropping of the bomb saved the lives of millions of GIs and ended World War II. By 1945, Japan was being repeatedly hammered by bombs. In fact, 119 cities had been smashed and the Japanese military was all but gutted. Japan, in effect, had been rendered helpless and bleeding. The same official archival documents from the Joint Chiefs show the Navy had been dead set against the atomic bomb, providing analyses revealing that a simple naval blockade against Tokyo's harbor would have been enough to starve out remaining supplies, ensuring a full Japanese surrender. We now know that surrender talks with the U.S. were already in the works. But since the talks began to drag on, the military devised Operation Olympic, in which American forces were poised to invade Japan by wintertime. If Olympic failed, the military had Operation Coronet, in which forces would split the island in two. President Truman dropped the bomb anyway. Not once, but twice. Then to avert the growing horror by the American people, began to inflate the numbers of how many U.S. troops might have been saved by the bomb until President Truman hit the number of one million. Yet President Truman's own General Eisenhower had calculated that each of these non-nuclear options would have sustained casualties of only 40,000 troops. So why did Truman drop the bombs anyway? Politically, a case could be made that since Russia's Stalin had just declared war on Japan, Russia would have next effected a Japanese surrender. Then Russia, the winning country, would have had control over most of Asia. And that conflict between the U.S. and Russia 
eventually did develop and later became known as the Korean War. Listen, well, it's still legal. Rethinking Heroes with Carrie Harrison. RethinkingHeroes.com. Do you own an annuity, either fixed rate, indexed, or variable? Are you paying high fees and getting low returns? If so, Annuity General would like you to have this free book to learn the pitfalls and mistakes of buying an annuity. The Annuity Do's and Don'ts for Baby Boomers contains the little-known truths about annuities, like how to help reduce your fees and increase retirement income. And it's free. That's right, free. As a bonus, we'll also throw in a free annuity rate report just for calling. We researched over 1,000 annuities and summarized rates and benefits from financially strong insurers. You get annuity do's and don'ts for baby boomers and the annuity rate report, both absolutely free for calling Annuity General today. Hurry, supplies are limited. Call now. 800-726-2194. That's 800-726-2194. Life can be full of risks. One thing you shouldn't take a risk with ever is your family's health insurance. If you're self-employed or you now need affordable health insurance, you need to make this free call right now and see how the health insurance helpline can help you get it. We specialize in helping the self-employed and people just like you that need affordable health insurance to get it. We have short and long-term health insurance plans and some even cover dental, vision, and prescription drugs. Don't take a risk with your family's health insurance. It's not worth it. If you're self-employed or now need affordable health insurance, call right now and learn for free how to get it. Listen, affordable health insurance plans for everyone just like you are a free phone call away. So give us a shout right now. Preventing Truth Decay. Rethinking Heroes with Carrie Harrison. RethinkingHeroes.com. Carrie Harrison with you, and this is Rethinking Heroes, RethinkingHeroes.com. Don't forget, you can sign up for our free newsletter, opt-in newsletter, simply by going to RethinkingHeroes.com. And you get a transcript of this show and all kinds of cool behind-the-scenes stuff, insights, observations, things that we simply cannot do on the radio. Well, this being the anniversary time of the first and only two atomic bombs that have been dropped, uh, we're talking about some of the stories that you won't know about, things that were not taught to you in school. And guess what? Probably will never be taught to you in school. That's the beauty of these radio stations that carry exactly this kind of content. This is the real stuff. If you could sign up for a course that taught you this kind of stuff, would you? Hands up in the air. Yes. Or would you rather know? And the Allies and the Axis came up over the hill. Napoleon in 1700. So uh, unfortunately, a lot of this is filled with gravitas. It's very uh, raw and real. But you're going to learn something you didn't know. 
I want to introduce to you Dave Lindorf. He's an investigative reporter and an author. He's the winner of the 2019 Izzy Award. And we give those, we, we, we give those, well, if we're lucky, we receive those for outstanding independent journalism. And he has received one of those. He's the producer of the new Steve James movie called A Compassionate Spy. All this running in collision with Oppenheimer, which is in the movie theaters as well. And we talked about that a little bit earlier. And this movie, A Compassionate Spy, is about Ted Hall, who is snatched from Harvard as a physics major right into the Manhattan Project to help build the first two nuclear bombs. And what did he do? Well, he decided to leak to the Russians that we were working on something, and that literally changed the course of history, a history you were never taught. I want to welcome you, Dave Lindorf, to Rethinking Heroes. Thanks for having me on, Kerry. And I say this, at, you know, uh, uh, forever and ever, over and over again, but I mean it sincerely. Heroes don't necessarily wear capes. They don't necessarily get awards. They don't necessarily stand in the middle of the town square, but they do the things that take real bravery and they do it often at their peril. And what you've done is revealed a side of American history, a side of really global geopolitical history that most of us didn't know that may literally change the way we look at the Manhattan Project and what happened after Japan uh, going into the Cold War. Uh, what you have researched, what you have revealed was stunning to me, and it now explains so much. Let's jump right into it. Here's this guy, Ted Hall. He's at Harvard. He gets snatched. They say, we want you to work on a secret project. He probably wasn't told up front what the ultimate outcome would be. But while he's working on this, he gets some kind of enlightenment, right? Yes, it's, that's exactly right. He he was put into the uh, experimental division of the project at Los Alamos, and what he was in, what he was doing was helping to refine the very complex engineering of the um, implosion system that was required to explode a plutonium bomb. Uh, the plutonium was, was so fizzled because a, of a uh, impurity that was in it whenever it was produced in a nuclear reactor that it would re explode in a cannon like the uranium bomb so fast that it, the pieces wouldn't even have gotten together yet and they would melt into a liquid and it would be a fizzle. So it may, might destroy a city block, but not a city. So they had to figure out a way to get it to the two pieces to come together uh, all in an instant in a microsecond, and that was a ball of multiple pieces fit together with explosions all around them, timed to go off exactly at the same time, and then it would, you know, crash together from every direction, uh, and then you got your Nagasaki and your Trinity. Those were the two plutonium bombs. So he knew all about it. He knew the whole secret, and he basically realized in the fall of 1944, about six months after they'd hired him, that first of all, Germany was not going to get the bomb. They were being bombed day and night by autumn of 44, and everybody knew it, they were going to lose. And he felt that the real fear was that uh, the U.S. would come out of the war with a absolute monopoly on the atomic bomb and would use the atomic bomb to have its way in the world and to prevent other countries from getting it, most notably the Soviet Union. So that was his concern, a monopoly on the bomb by the U.S. And I think we all know what the U.S. would have done had it had a monopoly for years. 
And in fact, this is what people don't know. And I think it's the big, big don't know is that before the war was over and Russia was our main ally during the war, by the way, uh, in fighting the Nazis, uh, he uh, the, the, the Manhattan Project was ordered to start trying to figure out how to industrialize the production of atomic bombs, not to make them by hand as they were doing. Um, but to but, be able but put to, a little Henry Ford into it. Yeah, exactly. And and they did it. It took them a couple of years. But by the time of about nine, late 1947 and into 48, they achieved that. And they were getting up to about being able to do 10 a month. And the intent was to get over four, 400 bombs which the Pentagon said would be required to destroy the Soviet Union as a as an industrial society, you know, hitting 70 to 100 cities. And and we saw the plans to these things. It was ultimately called Operation Dropshot. And they were targeting getting that done before what they called a day, which would be when the Soviets would were predicted to have not only a bomb, which they got in 1949, thanks to Ted, but uh, also um, maybe 50 or 100 of their own bombs, which would mean that they probably could slip a couple out even through a, a first strike by the U.S. and do damage to U.S. interests in Europe or even the U.S. So that after that, the plans dropped. But so so basically, Americans don't know that. Why were we with the only bomb mass producing them when we thought the Russians wouldn't get the bomb for 10 years? There's only and one explanation. Ted Hall. No, but I mean, why would the U.S. government have started mass producing bombs when they didn't expect anyone else to have it for another decade? Because you would intent you would like if you're going to make 400 cars, you got to put them on a lot and sell them. Otherwise, why do it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's pretty clear what was going on. Oppenheimer went to Hoover, went to uh, Truman and uh, was asked by Truman, when do you think the Russians are going to get the bond? And Oppenheimer said, this is in the, in the movie, uh, correctly, uh, that, uh, you know, uh, he was asked that by Truman. And he said, I don't really know. And Truman said, I do. Never. Now, that's a pretty frightening statement. I'm just going to reset, reintroduce you so we, we don't start sounding like a podcast as much as we all love them. It is radio. People get in and out of their cars every 10, 15, 20 minutes. We're talking right now to Dave Lindorf, investigative reporter and author. He's the winner of the 2019 Izzy for Outstanding Independent Journalism. He's also a producer of the new Steve James movie called A Compassionate Spy. And we're talking really about <coughs> Ted Hall, not a character that you see on any of these Manhattan Project TV series on the History Channel or anywhere else. Uh, you don't see him in the movies. He is deleted. He never happened, never existed. And here we have Dave Lindor finding out the true story of this guy who did something who many of us would not think particularly heroic, which is to tell the Russians, the Soviets at the time, this is during the Truman administration, uh, that the U.S. is building bunches of these things like a factory, atomic bombs. 
But the uh, outcome is, I think, what we would call mutually assured destruction or mad. Wasn't that the point of Ted Hall? Not that he loved the Russians or cared about the Soviets. I mean, that that's a, a tough one, especially in today's world. But he did it so that we wouldn't use them if somebody else had them. Otherwise, as you pointed out, if we're mass producing them, that means that there would have been an attempt to go and like drop 400 nukes on Soviet Russia, which is part of what your research has uh, brought forth. Yeah, that's right. There, there, there are documents that that uh, Ellsberg also documented this in the 50s, that there were these actual war plans to completely annihilate not only Russia, but China, North Korea, Vietnam and the eastern captive countries of Eastern Europe. Unbelievable. They even even were targeting East Berlin as though you could drop a bomb on East Berlin and not destroy West Berlin. <laughs> so pretty crazy. Yeah, but, Checkpoint Charlie, that'll stop it. Yeah, exactly. That stopped the radiation. The, the, the thing that I, I think is fascinating about Ted is that, first of all, he volunteered to be a spy. He never got paid a penny. He uh, he did this at a time also, and which Americans also don't know. Russia was our main ally. Their Red That's Army right. had, was chewing up uh, by 1944, the the best troops and equipment that the Germans had that wasn't on it wasn't over in Normandy. It had gone into Russia to conquer Russia and was being driven back in the 40s by the by Russian troops who were dying in you know, droves, but were beating them. And and it was being massively supplied by the U.S. with weapons that were transported on an Alaskan highway that was built for this and then shipped over on the uh, Trans-Siberian Railway to the Eastern Front to fight the Nazis. So, you know, Ted was helping actually a U.S. ally during the war. So so I'm going to make an analogy. It would be as though in a weird way he were helping the French. He were helping uh, the British. Uh, an right. ally that, that we accept. We accept the British as an ally. The French, well, you know, but the, the British, <laughs> not a problem. The English, that's good. Uh, it would be they had the same standing as the British. And it was, in fact, the Russians who went in and got Hitler in the bunker who allegedly had blown his brains out and had a secret marriage after not kissing a woman's hand over 10 years. Find a world leader that doesn't grab a bunch of chicks when you go in and take other countries. That's another story for another time. And I have some interesting evidence on that. That said, it was the Russians who went in and took Berlin, that part. So they were a full on ally without whom we probably wouldn't have won and conquered. So when Ted Hall was dealing with an ally, it's different from what we would hear with our today ears, which is here's this American working on atomic bombs and telling the Russians, this is not Vladimir Putin, this is an ally. So different staging there. Yeah, I mean, it was Stalin and and Ted actually said years later, uh, and it's in the film. If if he had known uh, that that all the horrible things being said about Stalin were true, he probably wouldn't have had the stomach to do what he did. However, he, uh, he said in retrospect, looking back, uh, he thinks that the young person he was at the time did the right thing. Um, that's a complicated thought process, but I think he's correct. I mean, and, and people should remember that. Uh, it's been 78 years since Nagasaki, and there's been no additional use of a nuclear weapon 
we've come close, but there's been no additional use of a nuclear weapon in 78 years with all these nuclear weapons we have around the world. Um, they haven't been used because of MAD. Listen, well, it's still legal. Rethinking Heroes with Carrie Harrison. RethinkingHeroes.com High fees and getting low returns? If so, Annuity General would like you to have this free book to learn the pitfalls and mistakes of buying an annuity. The Annuity Do's and Don'ts for Baby Boomers contains the little-known truths about annuities, like how to help reduce your fees and increase retirement income. And it's free. That's right, free. As a bonus, we'll also throw in a free annuity rate report just for calling. We researched over 1,000 annuities and summarized rates and benefits from financially strong insurers. You get annuity do's and don'ts for baby boomers and the annuity rate report, both absolutely free for calling Annuity General today. Hurry, supplies are limited. Call now. 800-726-2194. That's 800-726-2194. Life can be full of risks. One thing you shouldn't take a risk with ever is your family's health insurance. If you're self-employed or you now need affordable health insurance, you need to make this free call right now and see how the health insurance helpline can help you get it. We specialize in helping the self-employed and people just like you that need affordable health insurance to get it. We have short and long-term health insurance plans and some even cover dental, vision, and prescription drugs. Don't take a risk with your family's health insurance. It's not worth it. If you're self-employed or now need affordable health insurance, call right now and learn for free how to get it. Listen, affordable health insurance plans for everyone just like you are a free phone call away. So give us a shout right now. 800-478-4170. That's 800-478-4170. Preventing Truth Decay. Rethinking Heroes with Kerry Harrison. RethinkingHeroes.com. We're talking right now to Dave Lindorf, investigative reporter and author. He's the winner of the 2019 Izzy for Outstanding Independent Journalism. He's also a producer of the new Steve James movie called A Compassionate Spy. And there's been no additional use of a nuclear weapon. We've come close, but there's been no additional use of a nuclear weapon in 78 years with all these nuclear weapons we have around the world. Um, they haven't been used because of MAD. This is the thinking behind arming everyone in, in the U.S., but it doesn't work. With guns. <laughs> right. It just doesn't because one gun doesn't kill everyone. One nuke does kill yeah. everyone. Yeah. Carrie Harris with you. This is Rethinking Heroes, RethinkingHeroes.com. Don't forget to sign up for our free newsletter at RethinkingHeroes.com, and we're going to get you a transcript of this interview, plus some of the behind-the-scenes stuff we can't squeeze onto radio. We're talking to Dave Lindorf. He's an investigative reporter and author, winner of the 2019 Izzy. That's the award given to outstanding independent journalists. He's also the producer of the new Steve James movie called A Compassionate Spy, running in tandem with Oppenheimer. So theaters, theaters, theaters. And it's all about Ted Hall. This movie, A Compassionate Spy, uh, Ted Hall snatched from Harvard as a physics major and taken into the Manhattan Project to create the atomic bombs and then decided to leak to an ally. Odd as it sounds in today's ears, but the ally was Russia back then, that something was going on so that 
Harry Truman's goal of taking 400 manufactured nukes and dropping them on the Soviet Union. We just heard from Dave Lindorf, even East Berlin, as if nobody in West Berlin is going to even know it ever happened. I mean, ridiculous uh, all over the Baltic area. And this was still new territory, atomic energy. We didn't fully understand uh, what a nuclear winter would look like, what fallout looked like. We hadn't had a Chernobyl yet. We hadn't had a Fukushima yet. We hadn't seen crops destroyed. We hadn't seen bluefin tuna swim from Fukushima, from the shoals, 800 miles a day, all the way to the Pacific coast of California, get caught in nets, and then we eat that, and there's radiation in it. We didn't understand this stuff at the time. Uh, so the guys building these bombs that understood intuitively how incredibly dangerous they could be, anything to stop them from going crazy. And Dave, let's talk a little bit about Albert Einstein. More than theory of relativity. That's all we're taught about him because the other part, well, that's kind of forbidden. Albert Einstein spent the second half of his life as a peace guy. Like, don't use nukes. Don't kill each other. We're not taught that because it really ruins the idea of Albert Einstein. A few weeks before he died, uh, Einstein, uh, bedridden at that time, uh, talked with um, a... uh, uh, Linus Pauling, a, a two-time Nobel winner, won a pre- Peace Prize and won a Chemist Prize, uh, that the only major mistake he made in his life was writing a letter to Roosevelt saying you need to have a bomb project because the Germans are, are going to try to get one. He knew you could make a bomb. He knew how to make it. He knew to make a cannon and put two pieces together and blast them at each other of U-235, and you can make a bomb. It's a very simple process if you can get the U-235, which is hard to refine. But that was an engineering problem. And Einstein knew knew that there could be a bomb. And so he said to Roosevelt, you got to do a project and get the bomb first. And he later rude having done that. You know, another such person wiped from history half their life is Helen Keller. Blind, deaf, cool, you know, Braille, did these great things. She was a peacenik, to use my father's terminology, for the full (laughs) second half of her life. She worked with labor unions. She fought for peace. Never happened. Expunged from history. Yeah, it is wiped out. Yeah, it's wiped out. And I think that's why it's important that you found the only way we can get news out today is through entertainment. Like, you're not going to hear this on CNN. You're not going to hear this by any sober journalist on TV or, or really anywhere else on radio, because this is prickly information. But we trust our audience. We trust our listeners. We trust our viewers here to be able to analyze, cope, absorb, evaluate and figure out what they want to do with this information. And because of you and your new movie called A Compassionate Spy, a movie about Ted Hall, uh, it's premiering soon, is it not? It's starting on the 4th at the uh, Royal Theater in West L.A. That's the 4th of August. Yes, I think, and it has a, I think it has a one week run. Great. And then afterwards, we'll be able to find it online ubiquitously. Yeah, it'll be on Hulu. I think Apple Play or whatever their film thing is called and stuff. Yeah, well, that's it's great. coming. This is a story that's basically Oppenheimer. What Oppenheimer didn't do, but was accused of doing, giving the bomb information to the Russians is what Ted did. 
And Ted got away with it, it turns out. And of course, now we know how and why all of this turned out the way it did. It wasn't an accident that Stalin was able to, within a very short period of time after Nagasaki and Hiroshima, uh, demonstrate that the Russians had such a thing. And how did they find out about it? Well, now we know. Thanks to you, Dave Lindorf, investigative reporter and author. You are the winner of the 2019 Izzy for Outstanding Independent Journalism. You're also a producer of the new Steve James movie called A Compassionate Spy, all about Ted Hall, taken from Harvard as a physics major, put into the Manhattan Project and deciding to leak to, at the time, our ally, the Russians. Wrap your head around that. But yes, there was a time when they were allies so that there would be mutually assured destruction, thereby not letting one side do one thing to the other, which means all the live humans die. So how interesting where it all will go. Nobody knows. I want to thank you so much for joining us today on Rethinking Heroes. Carrie, thanks for having me. Preventing truth decay. Rethinking Heroes with Carrie Harrison. RethinkingHeroes.com. 